This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You know, I felt like I had to be professional, pristine, really austere in order to get ahead professionally. And it's sad that I felt that way. And it's sad that a lot of especially young women feel that way, because the reality is that humor is this secret weapon that if you use it right, you can be more powerful, you can you know, build relationships in ways that are just otherwise impossible. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. And we're excited because this episode is a first for us. Yes, indeed it is. It's the first time we've had two guests, two pioneering partners in crime on the show. Yeah, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Well, down to business. In this episode, we speak to two impressive women who, amongst other things, teach at Stanford University's famed Graduate School of Business. Exactly. Jennifer Orker is General Atlantic Professor at Stanford's Business School, where she's been one of the favourite professors there for around 20 years now. She's a behavioural psychologist and author, and some of her research areas are purpose and meaning and how they shape the choices we make. And most recently, she's been working with our other guest today, Naomi Bagdonis, on the power of using humor in a business context. Exactly. And Jennifer and Naomi are just releasing a book on this very topic called Humor Seriously, which we'll learn more about today. Yeah, look forward to it. But before we do, a little bit about Naomi Bagdonis. Naomi was a stand-up comic by night, and a management consultant by day, and never mixing the two. Until one day, she realised that she was living an almost double life. And the rest, as they say, is history. These days, Naomi is a lecturer at Stanford, an executive coach, an author, and my personal favourite, she teaches improv comedy to inmates at San Francisco's county jail. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. In this laughter-filled episode, you'll hear why Naomi and Jennifer believe humour is the secret weapon and superpower at work and in life, how we all fall off a humour cliff at the age of 23 and what we can do about it, practical tips to increase creativity and innovation in your team, and how you can gain an additional eight years on your life if you're lucky. 
So without further ado, enjoy this episode with these two witty and oh-so-smart women. Jennifer and Naomi, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. We are so happy to be here. Thank you for having us. We are so excited too. And a confession, this is the first time ever that we've had two guests on the podcast at the one time. So it's going to be great. Yes, we're already excited because this is our first time to have two podcast interviewers. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of voices. It's going to get very confusing. Very messy. <laughs> I know, I know. How are we going to let our listeners know who's who? <laughs> well, I'll make that easy to start with because, Jennifer, I'm going to throw to you first. And a question we like to ask all of our guests at the beginning is, if you met someone at a dinner party for the first time, how would you describe to them what you do? Oh, I often say that I am um, just a hardcore athlete, you know, (laughs) a professional athlete. And they look at me and they say, yes, I guess that. And then then we have drinks. That's what happens. (laughs) No, I do say that I am uh, an academic and I, you know, research, you know, meaning and purpose and how technology can cultivate human well-being. I most recently started teaching with Naomi humorous, serious business, even though out of our five-person family, I am voted the least funny person. So I met Naomi, asked her to guest lecture in my class. She is the most funny person in her family, probably. That's pretty funny people. Yeah. And then we wrote a book. Okay. That's quite the dinner party introduction. It certainly is. (laughs) Must make the conversations very interesting. I'm now going to ask Naomi the same question. How would you describe what you do today at a dinner party? Yeah, I'm sort of a modern day Batman. So consultant by day and then in the evenings I fight crime. (laughs) Even better. God, you know, we're just going to have to get better at this. Yeah, lift our game. Yeah, seriously. So let's see. I wrote a book with Jennifer. Mm -hmm. I coach leaders and celebrities and executives for appearances like the Today Show and Saturday Night Live and sort of media training. And then I also design and facilitate workshops for um, groups of executives. So think corporate offsites or things like that, but they are fun. Very cool. Well, we can't wait to dive in a little bit more. And what we're going to do is dive in first a little bit more with you, Jennifer. And for memory, you're Californian born and bred. Is that correct? Correct. I also have aspirationally blonde hair. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, some people might be going... Jennifer Orca, Orca, that's kind of familiar. You know, your dad is pretty much a legend in marketing and branding circles, isn't he? He is. I am unabashedly his biggest fan. You're right. He is quite remarkable, very famous, especially in Japan. So why why is your dad so famous, Jennifer? I like to think it's because of his offspring, but other people would argue it's because he's just in pioneering work in so many areas. I think every five or so years, he would develop a new body of work around an area that became so important. Certainly, he's best known for branding, but before that, he had, you know, he was a psychometrician. He wrote books about multivariate statistics. And then after that, he did a lot of work around advertising. And then eventually, you know, worked on branding. Most recently, he's taken um, over topics that I've been exploring. He recently wrote a book on story. Now he's writing one on purpose. I expect in three years, a new book on humor will come out. (laughs) 
how dare he? And and growing up with your dad being sort of, he wasn't an academic per se, but he was very academic in his approach to business and very thoughtful and pioneering, as you say. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I always wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an oncologist and make a dent in cancer. My mom's father passed on of cancer. And um, my mom has been a volunteer for hospice for 40 years, along with Meals on Wheels and American Cancer. And so we were really, um, yeah, I wanted to make a dent in cancer. Okay. And then fast forward and you're an academic. When did that shift happen? When I realized I was really good at certain things and not great at other things. I remember going in for one of my first interviews at an advertising agency in New York. And Stuart Agras, my boss at the time, said, you know, tell me more about you and how you like to work. And I said, oh my gosh, I really like to do math, statistics, and work in cafes. Is that okay? Like, can I just not come to work? And, you know, I'll get a lot of things done by myself. And he hired me, (laughs) which is remarkable. But then I realized that this was better suited for academics. Amazing. Yeah. I'm just just sort of taking that all in and thinking about you in an advertising agency. So Naomi, I'd love to explore now a little bit about you. Where where did you grow up? I grew up about a seven minute drive from Jennifer. Wow. So Jennifer and I went to the same high school. We both were voted extremely prestigious things in our high school, equally prestigious, you might say. Jennifer was the homecoming queen and I was the class clown, <laughs> basically the homecoming queen with brown hair. So yeah, so we, yeah, we grew up very close to each other. So you, you grew up really close, but you didn't know each other, did you? No, no, we didn't meet until years later when we crossed paths at Stanford and started working together six years ago. So Naomi guest lectured in my power of story class, and it was all about eigenvalue analysis and neuroscience. And more broadly, you know, how do you use data and story together for team engagement, to lead, et cetera. And the students for an hour and a half could not stop laughing. And what was remarkable was in the evaluations that year, (laughs) her guest lecture was by far and away the most popular, most memorable, and they really thought they learned the most, you know, from a quantitative perspective. So that's what started us rolling on, on why is humor effective? Wow. And we're going to really delve into that in a minute because it's absolutely fascinating. But Naomi, where did the comedy come in? How did you get into comedy? I always had a real personal passion for comedy. So ever since I was little, I would you know, watch SNL and then put on my own sketches in the basement and make my family watch, you know, but I got sort of into a more traditional career path. I went into consulting and then started doing executive coaching and these workshops for groups of executives. But all the while I was doing improv comedy on my nights and weekends. And it was sort of where I was spending all of my personal time. And so it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties where I realized I was sort of at this crossroads and felt like I was really leading a double life and then started to merge the two. What was it that made you keep the comedy to yourself? You know, I felt like I had to be professional, pristine, really austere in order to get ahead professionally. And it's sad that I felt that way. And it's sad that a lot of, especially young women feel that way. Because the reality is that humor is this secret weapon that if you use it right, you can be more powerful. You can, you know, build relationships in ways that are just otherwise impossible. 
And I didn't realize that until I got to a point where I was burning out at work. I had no good friends professionally because I wasn't bringing myself, you know, to work and it was just completely unsustainable. And Jennifer, you touched on Naomi coming to do a guest lecture and the class was falling about in laughter. And Naomi, you talked about the book and the precursor to the book, as we understand it, is the humor course that you taught together at Stanford Graduate School of Business. So Jennifer, how did that all come about? Was there a moment where you thought this MBA program needs a course on humor? Yeah, it was kind of like a boondoggle crazy idea. It really just started from Naomi's first guest lecture, which had nothing to do with humor. And then I think the next year, there was like a couple more guest lectures that were decidedly about humor. And then I think the next year we proposed it. Mm -hmm. And then we doubled the size the next year. And then I think like tripled the size the next year. So it really just took off. And what surprised you most when you did it that first year in terms of how the students responded? (sighs) The thing that was really surprising is how much they really evolved over the course. They started, you know, basically laughing a lot more, finding moments where they would notice levity where, you know, otherwise it would have passed them by. And it wasn't just that they got funnier. It was that they simply noticed these moments expecting to be delighted rather than disappointed. And frankly, also just being more generous with their laughter. So really simple shifts, but it was dramatic to see their change. I remember that first year we started what's called a humor audit. Before the first day of class, we have our students take stock of humor in their lives. So they answer questions like, when was the last time you really laughed? And I remember, you know, one response was, on Tuesday, I did not laugh, not once. The class started with a lot of fear because people came in, they realized, oh my gosh, my professional life is pretty devoid of humor. And they came in worried that we were going to ask them to do stand-up. And the reality is this class is not about comedy. Uh, This class is really about shifting our mindsets. And like Jennifer said, fundamentally navigating the world in a different way and being on the precipice of a smile. So it was incredible to see that shift from fear-based and, you know, not having any joy in their lives to really reporting having a lot more laughter and joy. And you just love that line, being on the precipice of a smile. What was it that led you both to decide to kind of go, hey, let's make this a book? That's a really good question. What was that moment? I don't know what the specific moment is. What I know is we had a lot of conversations about wanting to scale it, Mm -hmm. about really believing, you know, this whole thing started after I guest lectured it in Jennifer's class, we had this long phone conversation and we talked for like three hours about how humor is, we think, one of the most important forces in the world to bring people together and to have people just have more joyful and meaningful lives. And so, you know, seeing it pick up at Stanford was incredibly empowering to see. And also we both, I think, had this deep desire to have, you know, impact beyond the school and try and figure out how do we create a movement where everyone in the world is, again, navigating their lives in a different way and finding more joy. And what was so fascinating, too, like when we dove into the data, like 98% of executives prefer employees with a sense of humor and 84% of them believe that employees with a sense of humor do better work. And the flip, that when managers or bosses with a sense of humor are rated by their subordinates, they are 23% more respected 
and 18% more effective and 27% more motivating. So all of the numbers would corroborate, Mm. you know, what our instinct was. And yet a lot of that data wasn't no. That's interesting. It's not intuitive that managers with a sense of humor would be more respected. No, absolutely. And that's one of these, these myths that you think that humor is basically the opposite of being serious or credible or doing important work. But what the reality is, is we can do very serious things, but not take ourselves so seriously. And what happens for leaders is when they do show some some sense of humor and the bar is so low. So therefore all they have to do is show a, you know, a glimmer of humanity, of levity, of humor, of ability to laugh authentically. And what that does is it diffuses tension. It gives them increased perceptions of uh, status and confidence and competence by others. And people really feel like they can be more creative, even in moments a fear or uncertainty. Intuitively, that sounds really right. But when do you know the right time to use humor? It's so context dependent and it's so dependent on your status, your relationship with other people. So as an example, we also find that there are these four broad styles of humor. So we've run these large scale research studies over the last six years to understand, can you find pattern in humor styles, similar to how you would find pattern in personality styles. And actually you can, the, the data is quite robust here. And what we know is that these four styles, the magnet, the sweetheart, the stand-up, and the sniper, they all sort of have different strengths and they all have different things that they might need to look out for. So as an example, magnets and sweethearts tend to over-index on self-deprecation because they never want to use humor that makes anyone else feel uncomfortable they really want to use humor that's connecting. But a magnet might need to be careful if they're in a low status role, over-indexing on self-deprecation because it'll take away their power. And on the other side, you have snipers and stand-ups who are teasing, they're taking people down, they've got these really dry, sharp comments that might work well when you're lower status in in an organization, but once you get to higher status, could be alienating. So I hate to say, but it's totally, totally dependent on your style, the context and what your relationship is with other people. I love that. And listeners can actually do that test, can't they? And find out which style is their sort of Yeah, we did it. Yeah, we've done it. We're magnets. We're actually both magnets. (laughs) I'm a magnet too. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yes, people can go to humorseriously.com and click the little quiz button and you can um, find out what your style is. I'm just going to rewind us back a little bit and get one of you. Just can you give us, especially for listeners, uh, you know, a snapshot of what the book's about, a bit of an elevator pitch, if you like. Sure. So the book is about how humor is an underleveraged superpower in the workplace and in life. And we fall off a humor cliff around age 23 So all of us adults over the age of 23 have completely lost our sense of humor. And this is actually based on a global data set of over 1.4 million people. You know, we go to work and we become serious and important people and we leave our sense of humor at the door. And the thesis of the book is that this is hurting us and actually that we can be so much more powerful, better at our jobs, happier in our relationships 
and more resilient through hard times if we use humor as a superpower. And you can live longer. Do you know, it will give you eight years on your life. There is one large scale survey that was done in Norway, a longitudinal study over 15 years, where people who scored high on a sense of humor did live eight years longer. And what's even more interesting is that those people that had a sense of humor had 30% increased chance of survival when severe disease strikes. And we are here now, people. This is what we need. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, as you were relaying all those research studies and everything, we can hear the General Atlantic professor of Stanford Graduate School of Business. Like, you know, this is serious stuff. As you say, you know, there are some real benefits and it feels like humor has been the neglected subject matter, perhaps. And then yet it's what the world seems to need right now. Yeah, and what's remarkable is we, we think of humor as being sort of a frivolous thing that happens spontaneously and uh, it only belongs in certain contexts. And what we found through, again, this research is that there you can sort of have a sampling platter of what is your goal and how do you use humor strategically towards that goal. And so those four categories that we found in the research are power, bonds, creativity, and resilience. So Jennifer mentioned earlier, using humor in the right context can be a power move. People view you as higher in status. We know that, you know, in moments of social disconnection and moments when people are feeling lonely and when mental well-being is struggling, we know that the number one factor that lifts people is social connection. And humor has a remarkable power for social connection. There's actually research that when couples are asked to reminisce about moments of shared laughter, versus just moments that were fun or, you know, they, they had a good time together. They later report being 23% more satisfied in their relationships versus the control conditions. And this is simply from recalling a moment of shared laughter. And then obviously creativity. So who doesn't need to be innovative in a fast changing world right now? And of course, resilience, which is a topic that's becoming more and more important in this moment in time. Yeah, for sure. And we definitely want to come back to creativity. But, you know, what's your top tip, Naomi, on how do you cultivate your own humor? How do you cultivate humor? One really tactical tip that I'll give is at the end of every day for the next seven days, write down three moments, write down your three funniest moments from the day. This sounds really simple, but probably at the end of the first day, it's actually going to be pretty challenging because this is not necessarily something that our brains are, brains are primed to look for. And what we find is that by the end of day seven, people have these long lists. You know, they're stopping at 10 a.m. to write down three things that they've already thought of. And even though this exercise feels really simple, it leverages a principle in psychology called the priming effect, which essentially shows that when our brains are primed to look for something, we're more likely to find it. And so by looking for these moments of laughter, by writing down these three moments at the end of every day, we actually end up finding and creating more joy in our lives. That's great. It really reminds me of that, the positive psychology one of writing three thing, good things that have happened as well. But that makes complete sense. Jennifer, what's your favorite tip to, you know, that we could take away to sort of help us be more funny and use humor? One thing that I started doing once I started, you know, learning, you know, all of the benefits associated with humor is just every time I end a talk, an email, a text, anything. I just make sure I don't sign off with something robotic. Like, 
best, which is the worst, you know, and <laughs> so, I agree. <laughs> and all you have to do, and it's not hard, like it's, you know, a simple callback to a moment when, you know, you shared something that made you laugh or smile or something like that. So even at, on the sign off or a PS, just bringing back anything that relates you to the person as a human, it doesn't even have to be funny. Along with the end of the experience has disproportionate impact on how someone thinks of you or how they relate to you. And so just take like the extra two seconds to not sign off with best and sign off with anything but best has, has an extra, like a shockingly, a shockingly impactful um, effect on, on my life. That's brilliant. Naomi, you've done quite a lot of work in innovation and I know that you spent a year at IDEO, but you, you do a lot of work with executive teams on creativity and innovation. How have you found that humor can help businesses innovate better? Well, there's remarkable research around what happens to our brains when we laugh. And one of the things that happens is our cortisol levels go down. And both cortisol and epinephrine. So you can think of these as our fight or flight alarm systems in our brains. And we know that when we are stressed, when we have high anxiety, our brains can't access higher order thinking that's required for creativity. And so from a neurological perspective, we know this. We know that laughing together unlocks creativity. From a practical perspective, it can be harder in a room of board members where an offsite to convince them that, hey, we're going to laugh together before this experience. You're going to do something goofy, but trust me, it's going to work. And so you kind of have to Jedi mind trick it a little bit. Um, and I'll give you an example. So I was facilitating a, a full day board retreat for a multi-billion dollar company, you know, a bunch of really senior folks who are coming to do what we call a war gaming simulation. So during the simulation, they break into teams, they take on a persona of one of their largest competitors and they try and ideate around how to take down the company. So it's a really effective tool and in innovation to sort of get people to perspective take. Well, what we did was we had all these subtle cues to get people to laugh. One of them was when people got to their breakout groups, they had costumes. So the Silicon Valley group had red hoodies and baseball hats. The nature loving group had granola bars and uh, <laughs> fishing poles. And there's just this moment where you see the energy of a room shift that is incredibly magical. I remember watching, it happened to be a group of all men walk to their breakout group and, you know, they opened the bag, they looked at the red hoodies, kind of confused. And as soon as they put them on, the room shifted. They were laughing at each other. They were pushing each other's hoodies back and uh, their body language changed and they were ready to engage with the creative session in a very different way. That's so fascinating. And, you know, as a leader, you know, for your next offsite, bringing some of some subtle humor in sounds like that could be a, a fantastic idea. I love that. I remember once wanting to do a, an offsite, but insisting that everyone who came like in my team wore sneakers so that we would be more bouncy because I, you know, it was right. It was in the be day. Of, it was in the day of <laughs> shoulder pads and heels, you know, like we all took ourselves a bit too seriously. And I reckon, as you say, once you put the hoodie on, you feel different. And when you're wearing sneakers, when you're used to wearing court shoes and the like. Yeah, right. The sneakers are fantastic. It's it's what are all of these cues that tell us that it's okay to play? You yeah, know, yeah. instead of and what are the orthodoxies about how we interact as as really serious people that can be flipped? And those are little things like, 
in the, you know, in the debrief session, instead of raising your hand, if you hear a good idea, you've got a cowbell and you ring a cowbell (laughs) or, you know, just little things that are just ridiculous and lighthearted, still accomplishing the mission of what you're there to accomplish, but in a different way and in a lighter way. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, 2020 hasn't been a very funny year, has it? And I know, Naomi, even last night, you're in a fire danger area. Is your house in danger right now? We are okay. Thank you for asking. But um, the air quality, I think, is... Yeah, we can't go outside. Yeah, we can't go outside. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we know how that feels in Australia. Uh, We spent our summer doing that too. So, you know, it's really been a tough, tough year, hasn't it? And so how do you both keep the levity going? How do you find humor in really dark moments? What do you do? Jennifer? Well, so first of all, I think there's a, you have to really understand that humor is more important in these moments than in normal times. And it sounds counterintuitive, but um, if you think about all of the health benefits that we've talked about and, you know, the eight years longer that you might live if you live in Norway, it's incredibly important to infuse moments of levity and humor in these dark days. We often say that um, the, the balance of gravity and levity give power to both. And you live a life that is, is so serious and so dark. And you don't look for small moments of levity, joy, and humor. It will impact you from a mental well-being perspective. And it will make it harder to actually, you know, achieve your goals, but also enjoy the journey. You know, we, you know people often think that we need to chase happiness. But our argument in the book is that what you really want to do is, is really anchor on what's meaningful for you. And then do so, you know, fueled by humor. And that's a better recipe for for true well-being. I think it's really radical too because, you know, if you're sort of sitting in an environment where you are feeling overwhelmed and stressed with work, it's not what you first think of would help you get you out of that dark place or manage and have more resilience to cope with whatever stresses are in that scenario at the given time. So it's it's really quite a radical and oh so refreshing, joyful thought to think that we can chase humor and everything could be better in some way. Just to your point, you know, we end our book with the regrets of the dying, you know, pulling from my mom's work at hospice. What do people regret when they're on their deathbed? And there's, there's these five things. They regret that they weren't more bold. They regret that they weren't as authentic as they should have been. They listened too much to society. They regret that they weren't more present. They just savored small little moments. They regret they didn't laugh, you know, as much that they chased happiness too much, didn't allow for happiness and joy. And they wish they had the chance to say, I love you one more time. And we really find that humor allows you to be more bold because it reduces the risks of failing and allows you to be more authentic because you understand what makes you laugh and how to read the room and understand what what lifts you. You are more present because you're waiting for those callbacks and appreciating moments when you can jointly laugh. You um, are more generous with laughter and you can argue that when humor exists, love is not far behind. Yeah. I love that. And for listeners who don't know what a callback is yet, because the book is just, you know, about to be hot off the press as we go to air, a callback is when you reference something that was funny between the parties involved and you remind them of it in that moment in, in the future. So I think I've got that right, haven't I, Jennifer? 
Exactly. You should write a book on it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, speaking of that, you know, how is it writing a book together? You know, any top tips if Claire and I decided we wanted to write a book together, what would you, what do we have to look out for? I do have one tip. I have one tip, which is that writing a book at the very big, if we rewind to where we were two years ago or three years ago, when we first were like, what if we wrote a book? Yeah. It seems really intimidating to write a book. And so what we did was we started a Google doc and we entitled it words on a page. And so it wasn't a book. It was just some words on a page that we were just going to throw together and not care about too much. And those words on a page turned into a really shitty proposal. So when we, Which we titled a really shitty proposal. <laughs> <laughs> we literally, yeah, we sent it, we sent it in and, you know, we had been calling it a really shitty proposal forever. And we we're just like, you know what? We should just submit it with the title, a really shitty proposal. Cause it helped us. So we submitted it and then it turned out the publisher thought that was, you know, they liked that a lot, but you know, whatever you need to do, to lower the bar for yourself and also find ways to have fun because it's gonna, you're gonna have to fight off some sharks. (laughs) And that's oh so topical when you're based in Australia. So what we always like to ask our guests at the end of the podcast is if you could go back in time and give your 30 year old self a piece of advice, what would it be? So Naomi, what would your advice to your 30 year old self be? Oh, Jennifer's gonna have to start first. Okay. Um, (laughs) lower the bar for others with simple little like tools that just make you laugh. And even if you're not making them laugh, but it just makes you laugh and it makes you more bold and authentic. Do that. Yeah. Great. Love that. And what about you, Naomi? Consider making your side gig part of your main gig. Mm -hmm. I was doing comedy for many years and it was because I just, I love it and I believe in it so deeply and being able to integrate that into what I actually do day to day has been incredibly rewarding. Brilliant. Well, Jennifer and Naomi, thank you for the most fun-filled conversation. We would absolutely love to be able to share your book and details about yourselves with our listeners. Where should they go to find you? You can go to humorseriously.com and you can buy our book Humor Seriously anywhere that sells books. Excellent. Brilliant. And we'll put some links on the show notes page too. Thank you so much. That was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. That was really fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was. And I don't know about you, but since we've had that conversation with Jennifer and Naomi, I've been much more aware of looking for the lighthearted and the humour in situations. I can tell, I can tell. And I think we're both laughing more since we spoke to them as well. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? You know, and it's a really wonderful thing to consider that, especially in these challenging times, that levity and humour can actually make things better, both in how we feel and also how we solve gnarly work problems more creatively and effectively. Yeah, for sure. And I really love that line. It was something like being in that state of constantly being on the precipice of a smile. You know, if we can all cultivate that, I'm sure it'd be so good for everybody's well-being. Yeah, it just feels like the tonic we all need right now, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Jennifer and Naomi's book, Humour Seriously, is out from the 8th of October in many countries, particularly Australia and the UK. And for our American friends, it's being released in February next year. So you'll have to be a bit more patient for that. And a reminder to listeners, if you're curious to see what humour type you are, then head to our show notes page where you'll have all the links that you need. 
Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for next week's mini episode and then we'll be back after that talking to a social media dynamo. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.